I don't know how many of you grew up in churches where you observe the church calendar. Uh, but for those of you who are aware of the church calendar, you will know that we have moved into the season of Lent. As of this past Wednesday, uh, which was Ash Wednesday. And so for, for some of you who aren't aware of the, the um, church calendar, you just thought everybody didn't take a shower on Wednesday. It's just a little, it's like they had dirt on their foreheads. Like, man, you didn't, you should, you should wash a little better. Uh, but, but what that is, is uh, obviously they, they put ash on their, on their heads as part of Ash Wednesday. And uh, so they end up looking, people end up looking like they have smudges on their heads. Um, I was walking, Jerry and I were walking through the airport in Chicago, and I was struck by how many people uh, observe Ash Wednesday. I don't know if you guys have, like, those of you who saw people out, did you see a lot of people? I mean, church attendance, you know, is relatively stable, but, like, the amount of people who would call themselves followers of Jesus is declining year over year, every year. And so, but Ash Wednesday is one of those, like, do you got it? It's like, I, I feel like maybe people just go just to get, a, you know, either that or they go back in the garden and <laughs> got to put something on my forehead and look like, I, look like I did the thing. But I was surprised at how many people I saw in the airport that were, had ash on their foreheads. I, it was surprising to me. Uh, and, and so this season of Lent is kind of the time period leading up to Easter. And, you know, the church historically has engaged in a sort of spiritual spring cleaning. Lent is not in the Bible. You don't find it anywhere in Scripture. It's not like you're forced to observe it. It's not something where if you choose not to observe it, that somehow you have disobeyed God. That's not how it works. But it's this, it's this thing that historically in the church, people have practiced spiritual disciplines. We fast or avoid certain things in order to make space to engage in ways that we might become closer to God. So some people, I mean, you've probably seen this. Uh, it's popular on my Facebook feed. That Tuesday, everybody said, bye, see you in 40 days. I'm fasting Facebook for Lent or whatever else. And people like, so maybe people would fast Facebook and say, I'm going to be off of Facebook for the entirety of Lent so that maybe I can engage in some uh, regular Bible reading. Like maybe that's a practice that somebody wants to engage in is, is a regular time of scripture reading. Uh, and so they fast from uh, Facebook or, or, you know, but people have done this for centuries. This, this practice of abstaining from something for the sake of leaning into some sort of spiritual practice uh, to prepare their hearts to again encounter the risen Christ at Easter. So this is sort of a time for us to take stock and, and move towards remembering again the, re the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it also makes a great time to change the sermon series. Uh, so we're going to begin a series, our Lent sermon series, that we're calling Transitions. And this series will take us right up to Easter on Sunday, April 21st. For those of you who don't know, Easter is Sunday, April the 21st. The series title, really, it comes from what we understand is happening through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that some sort of transition happens. And so we're, we're naming this, but... Uh, transitions, but it has implications, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it has implications for the whole world, right? Like that something happened that initial Easter weekend, that there was a transition that happened. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but like, have you ever thought about what it would have been like before Jesus? Like, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like, what would it have been like before Jesus? Like, 
the general atmosphere, and I don't know if you're, you're aware of this, but this idea of grace would not have been common. This idea of, like, it would not have been a common thing. Understanding that would not have been common. And I just think, man, if you've ever thought about it, like what the transition would have been like from living in the world before Jesus to the impact that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus had on the world. But there's a huge transition that has happened there. And even if you wouldn't say you're a Christian, the idea of forgiving people is, I mean, it's not exactly just Jesus, but Jesus certainly made that a, a, a common thing, right? This idea of forgiveness. Um, so this transition period has uh, implications for the whole world, but it's not just the Easter narrative. It's not just Easter where this happens. It's all through our faith, right? There's constant transitions always happening. We could talk about the transition from being people of the old covenant to being people of the new covenant. And there's a transition. And, and you know, like most of your letters in the New Testament are written from a, how do we navigate this transition? You know, how do we navigate the fact that you used to have to become a Jew and now you can just be a Christian and not become a Jew? How do we... How do we navigate the transition, that there's a transition there? We could certainly talk about the transition we currently experience day to day, being in between the kingdom that has come in Christ and yet is not fully here and will be fully here when Jesus returns, that we're in a transition time. We live in a transition time. We could talk about the transition from going to the temple to worship. Certainly, you know, like in the Old Testament, you see that people go to the temple to worship God. And yet now we find ourselves as people who are temples, mobile temples of the Holy Spirit, where God dwells inside of us, and we worship then wherever we go. It's changed. It's a transition. What does it look like that we don't have to come here to worship? We can worship wherever we go because we carry the presence of God. There's a transition. Certainly we could talk about what happens when you surrender your life to Jesus, right? Going from death to life. It's a transition. There's transitions all over the place. It's a biblical idea. And that all of us, at some level, we live in transition, right? You probably can think about it in your life. Some of you are about to finish college. You're about to finish college and move into the workforce. And the transition is, what does it feel like to go from every other hourly menial job that you had into the career that you've chosen, that first job, that transition? It's an entirely different experience. Or, or for some of you, it's, you, you know, you've been renting a, a, for a long time, and maybe you're moving into owning a home, or you've, you've rented, and, now, and then now you've owned a home, and the transition between renting and owning, right? You can't just call somebody to fix it. It's you that you call to fix it, right? But there's a transition. Or for some of you, it's going from being single to being married. That's a big transition, right? And if you're married, you know that. If you're single, good luck. But it's a transition. Uh, maybe it's going from just being married to being married with kids. Another big transition. Or maybe being married with kids to being empty nesters. Some of you have experienced that transition. Or for some of you, the, the transition is being a parent to now being a grandparent. you got to actually be responsible for raising the kid right. You just get to spoil the crap out of them. Right? I mean, I know some of you are like, yeah, I know. I do that. <laughs> and it seems that all of us are experiencing transition all the time. I mean, I could continue, but I won't. But there's, there's transitions. We could talk about transitions all day long. 
And so as we prepare our hearts this Lent season for the, the remembrance, the commemoration, the remembering of the resurrection of Jesus, I want to look at some of the, the biblical transitions. And today, I want to look at a huge transition. We're going to look today at uh, one verse. We're going to look at John 1, verse 14. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 1, 14, or you can do like I do and just wait for them to put it on the screen. Um, and here's what it says. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This verse, in this verse, John is trying to capture into words what happened when the eternal word, Jesus himself, left heaven and came to earth in human flesh. This is a transition from being God in heaven to being a human. And so I want to look at this. The biblical word for this is incarnation. You know, it's a big word. But the incarnation of Jesus is what we would call this. And so the eternally existent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. God becomes human. And this is a huge transition. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase called The Message. He says it like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. And as we read this, we may or may not be immediately aware of the implications of such a transition. What, what does this matter for me? What are the implications that Jesus became a man? Now, there's many implications. I'm just going to cover a few. The first implication for us that Jesus became man is because Jesus became human, God understands your experience. God understands your experience. You know, we all have a, a whole range of human experience, right? You know, we've experienced great joy. We've experienced great angst. We've experienced great sadness or fear or loss. We've experienced a wide range uh, of human emotion, right? And many of you have experienced all of them, maybe even in the same day. And that many times we find ourselves wondering if anyone understands what it is like to be us. Do, does anybody understand? I think one of the loneliest places in the world is to have a bad or traumatic experience and feel like nobody understands what it's like to be me. There's not a soul in the world that understands what I'm going through. Or what it feels like to empathize with me. Like nobody can empathize with me. And the stuff of extremely extreme loneliness is where not only does nobody understand your experience and you're all alone in the world. If God doesn't understand your experience. You are truly alone in the world. It's one of the loneliest experiences ever. You are truly alone if nobody understands and God doesn't understand you. And conversely, I think one of the most amazing experiences is finding somebody after you thought you were the only one, finding somebody who shares your experience. And when you thought you were the only one, they're like, oh, they get me. Have you had, you've had that experience, right? Where, where like I thought I was the only one. This is the stuff that, that makes deep and intimate relationship and friendship when you find out that you're not alone in the world, that other people understand what it's like to be you. And I think there, you know, 
But there was a time in my life where I felt both of these things. And I, I realized last night I'm not going to be able to tell this story without crying. So, sorry. Uh, <laughs> there was a time when I felt both of these things. Many of you know we have two kids. And, and between the two kids, Jerry was pregnant with another child. And, and so we were excited about it. And we just assumed that it all works. And we got to 17 weeks. And at a routine appointment, we found out the baby had died. And it was traumatic to both of us. Like I had no expectation that this was not going to work out. None whatsoever. I, I, went, I was working that day. At the first, the first child, I went to every appointment because I was so excited. You know, like, I don't know. See this thing on the screen? It's so cool. You can hear the heartbeat. It's so cool. And so I just thought, well, they all work that way. And I went to work that morning. I got back and I had a voicemail that said, I need you to come to the hospital now. And so I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I called her on my way. She's crying. I don't know what's going on. I get there and, and realize they, they put, it up, put the scan up on the, on the screen and there was no heartbeat. And I think we, we just fell apart. We just fell apart. It was traumatic, but I tried to be as strong as I could. You know, tried to be, I've got to be the man. I've got to be the, the strong person. I tried to hold it together. So I stuffed a lot of how I felt. A lot of the feelings of how I felt. Now, people had a lot to say. We had lots of people around us. And even though they were trying to be helpful, basically what they had to say ranged from being unhelpful to being completely hurtful. I mean, just some horrible things that people said. And, and they're trying to be helpful. They said, one, one lady in the hospital said, you know, well, maybe, maybe it's better this way. And I, I just wanted to stab her. Better? I mean, just honest, right? Better? This is better. It's better that my child died. Yeah, okay. I don't believe you. Like, I think, you know, I, I try to, oh, uh, you know, you sort of like, but it just heaps on this pain. And I began to feel like nobody in the world understood what we were going through. Nobody in the world understood what we were going through. It was like the worst pain I had, had ever felt. And just find myself crying at times for no good reason. I mean, there was a good reason, I guess. But, like, just going through my day and everything's normal, and I'm crying. I just don't know why. And I felt really, really, really alone. I felt like God didn't even understand. Just really alone. About five months later, God uh, brought back kind of memory of the experience and he challenged me to trust him with that hurt. And I lashed back. I was just, you know, the, the raw emotion of it. I mean, it was just, it was so sensitive. I lashed back. I said, what do you know? What do you know about what feels to lose a son? <laughs> what do you know? And in that moment, the answer hit me. He knows. God himself knows what it feels like to lose a son. And in that moment, I realized I could trust him because he knew my experience. He knew what it felt like to lose a son. You see, God understands your experience. You can trust him. Because God became a man in Jesus, he understands your experience. 
He understands what it feels like to live life alone in the world and think you're the only one. He understands. He understands what it's like to live with hunger and thirst. He understands what it's like to live with temptation and to experience great sadness. You say, well, I've been abandoned. I've been betrayed. I was stabbed in the back by somebody close to me. I've been lied about. I've been cheated. Friend, Jesus understands these experiences. The incarnation means you never have to be alone in your experience. No matter what you're going through, the incarnation of Jesus means he understands. I would never trust a God that didn't understand. Jesus understands. You can trust God. The second implication of God becoming human in Jesus is that you have a perfect example to follow. You have a perfect example to follow. There's a a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians where Paul tells the Corinthians to follow him as he follows Christ. You guys, some of you will know that passage. And Paul tells the Corinthians, you can follow me as I follow Christ. And what is implied is that Paul is a credible example. Paul is a credible example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. The reality is, this is supposed to be true of every Christian leader. You want to be a Christian leader? This is supposed to be true of you. How's that for a little bit of a, a burden? Climb the, climb the Christian ladder, the corporate, you know. Well, what's supposed to be true of you? Well, the criteria of being a leader in the church of Jesus Christ could be summed up like this. If people follow you the way that you follow Jesus, would they get close to following Jesus? Is it true of your life? If you've watched the news at all in the past decade, you're probably aware that Christian leaders haven't fared real well, at least in America. We haven't fared real well, from the Catholic scandals to the Willow Creek stuff with Bill Hybels. And I mean, we were, we were in um, Chicago this week, and, and uh, the national director was just talking about last year. There were like, I don't remember how many he said, just a n- six in a very short span of time, leaders that fell. And so lest we believe, oh, the vineyard's got it all figured out. Six that fell. And, and if you look, you see that over and over leaders blow their lives out because they don't live their lives in such a way that people could follow them. We've sort of generated this celebrity culture in, in pastoral ministry. People end up living or saying one thing in public, but living a different way in private. And if you do that for long enough, eventually it blows out. That's what happens. As a Christian leader, you don't reproduce what you say. You reproduce who you are. I can stand up here and tell you to read Scripture all day long, but if I never read Scripture, what do you think everybody's going to do? If I never open this book, if whenever I get here I have to take the cellophane off of this book, what happens? People, you know, that, that, that whole thought of don't do as I do, do as I say, right? Or do as I say, don't do as I do. It doesn't work in discipleship. Absolutely not the case ever. For those of you who have your heart set on being a leader in the church, is your life one worth replicating? Like, Does the world need more disciples like you? And if not, fix it. Fix it. Find out what part of your life is out of sync with being a disciple of Jesus and take it to him in complete surrender. 
That's not saying, hey, let's work out a deal. That's saying, here's this, and you do whatever you have to do to get rid of it. It doesn't get better as you move up the ladder. As you, as you in Christian leadership, as you uh, get, quote, unquote, promoted, it doesn't get easier. Your, your options get more and more limited. Do you know what happens if I blow my life out now versus what would have happened if I blew my life out five years ago? It doesn't get easier. If anything, it gets more important that you become completely rooted as a disciple of Jesus. There's no place in following Jesus where you can coast. No place. And when you do, you got to watch out. You want to plant a church? Ruthlessly pursue a life with Jesus that's worth reproducing. Ruthlessly. The good news, though, is that we don't have to be dependent on the brokenness of man in order to understand the way to live our lives, right? Some wonderful guys captured the life of Jesus, and they put it in a book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They wrote it down. And so because it's been translated into English, I mean, I don't know if any of you know Greek, but you don't have to know Greek. You have a picture of what it looks like to live life the way Jesus intends. Jesus has demonstrated this. You don't have to guess. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to lick your finger and see which way the wind is blowing. But Jesus has left you with a way to understand how to live life because he's demonstrated it. And because the gospel writers preserved it, you can read it. And here's one of the, the things that every person who wants to follow Jesus should do. Every one of you who wants to follow Jesus, you should spend time in this book, understanding who Jesus is. You should spend time understanding how Jesus lived his life, what he commands, and most importantly, how do I obey what he commands? It's not about knowing who Jesus is in your head. It's about living it with your hands and feet. It's like lessons. I was, still am a flight instructor. I just haven't done it in a while. Um, as a flight instructor, you never move on in a lesson until somebody gets it, right? People get in the airplane like, when do I get to learn how to land? Well, when you learn how to fly straight, when you learn how to fly slow, when you learn how to turn and line yourself. Like, so there's a lot of things we got to learn before we can learn to land. And we don't move on until you get it, ever. The same is true of following Jesus. I mean, the, one of the hardest things is we stand up here week after week and we teach you another thing. And there's no guarantee that in the next seven days that you're going to even try to put it in your life. People come and they sit in a church for years and they go, it doesn't seem to have changed my life. Well, did you try? Did you engage in the things that Jesus says? It's one of the things I love about the way we do small group, friends. At the end of every small group, we walk away with, how am I going to actually try to apply this to my life? I mean, we can pretend like we're doing something or we can actually do it seems to me like we ought to actually follow Jesus. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to get in this book and you've got to understand who Jesus is, what he commands, and try to live it. And then God gives you grace to actually do stuff like that. So because Jesus became human, we have a credible example for life. And now there's other implications uh, that we don't have time to cover in detail today because you all are sitting here waiting with bated breath for why I like teased out on Facebook and last week. Like, you guys are waiting for an announcement. Everybody's like, get to the point, man. 
I could have come an hour late. (laughs) But I do want to make mention of a couple of them. Because Jesus became a man, he could die for our sin in our place. Jesus could stand in our place and die the death that we, and we're going to cover that more uh, later on in the series. Because Jesus became human, his resurrection guarantees that we who die in Christ will also be raised from the dead. Don't overlook that guarantee. Jesus is the first fruits from the grave, which means that humanity will be resurrected. It's the way that you can know that the resurrection is a real thing, that you will have a resurrection body. Why? How do I know that? Well, because the first human to be resurrected has already happened. God's going to do it. And so everything that he said, I can believe. The final implication that I want to talk about today, though, is this. Because Jesus became human, we have a model for how to engage in his mission. We have a model for how to engage in the mission of God. And certainly that includes things like praying for the sick and feeding the hungry and caring for the poor. But what I mean by Jesus giving us a model is more broad than that. It has a wider scope than that. You see, God's perfect creation was ruined by sin. Humanity's relationship with creator God was broken and God had no obligation to fix it. He could have just let it go. But he said, well, we'll try again next time. He could have just abandoned us all to our own devices, but he didn't do that. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only son Motivated by love for people who were far from him and not coming back. It wasn't like we were like, oh man, we broke the relationship. How do we get in a relationship with God? It was like good riddance. That's how humanity lives when you're far from Jesus. It's not like go, go out into the, into the world and find people who are far from Jesus. Nobody's going, I wish I could get closer to God. They're not trying to come back. And God stepped into humanity's brokenness for the sake of those who were not looking for him. And at great cost to himself, including his life, he pursued those who were far from him in order to restore the relationship. And this is in, it is this, that in this, that Jesus demonstrates how we, uh, how we who know are to love and follow him in engaging with his mission. As Eugene Peterson says, I'll read it again, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. God didn't wait for people to come looking for him. He moved into their neighborhood and went to work restoring the relationship. So much of the way we do church in America is so contrary to this. We create cool rooms with awesome music and the best preaching we can find. And we try to call a world that's not looking to be restored to its creator in hopes that maybe we can create a cool enough environment that maybe some lost people would decide that they want to stumble into a church and maybe on the way they can get saved. We're trying to attract people who don't want what we have to offer. I mean, come on. Like... Honestly, have you ever, like, watched, like, the Grammys? Do you think that we're ever going to create music that's as good as the Grammys? Probably not. Maybe some of it, but most of it, no. And if you have ever gone to the movies, well, not last night. I I won't tell you what movie we watched last night. Don't go watch it. It's a waste of money. Um, But most movies, the, the cinematic, like, 
capability that they have in making movies is so good, right? I mean, if you've ever watched this stuff, it's so good. There's no way I'm going to stand here and be as good of entertainment as Hollywood. It's never going to happen. And yet, over and over in American Christianity, we go, well, let's, uh, you know, if I get some skinny jeans, if I can, like, let's, let's buy a smoke machine, let's get some, like, strobe lights, you know, like, really just, like, give people just, like, seizures. That would, you know, like, that would help. And then a world who's not looking for what we have to offer might find their way in because the production value is so high. It's garbage. It's garbage. And you know what, though? Here's the craziest part. God in his great mercy has used it. That we've just sort of thrown crap at the wall and hope it sticks. And God goes, well, I mean, I'm going to use whatever I can. And in his great mercy, he has led people to Jesus with the garbage that we in America have called church. But friends, this is not the kind of mission Jesus invites us into. I don't think you can read this book. I don't think cover to cover you can read this book and say, attractional church, that's the way that we do this. We just try to attract people. That's not the way it works. We've not been invited into attractional ministry. We have been invited into incarnational ministry. We have been invited to pursue relationship with people who are far from Jesus and not looking to get closer. And we have been invited into leaving our comforts and spending ourselves at great cost for the sake of lost people being reunited with their creator. Do you know the joy that that looks like? I mean, I've just, I've watched this happen. Do you know the joy that comes in that? Like from first encounter of you're crazy and stupid and I wish you would get away from me to I want to know Jesus. That's what we're called into. That's what we're called into. I'm not calling the people to come to the vineyard. I'm calling the vineyard to move into the neighborhood and pursue those who are far from Jesus. That's what I'm calling us to do. And some of you say, well, Derek, it sounds like you're saying we're moving. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. A little over a year ago, some of you will remember this room was filled with people. We bought more chairs because we owned 60 chairs. We bought 20 more chairs because we were like, well, that's, that's going to take care of it. And we, so we owned 80 chairs. And the room was full. And I had this harebrained idea to make two gatherings. It wasn't a harebrained idea. We just thought, well, hey, I don't want to not have space for people who are far from Jesus who do find their way into this room, right? So... Let's make two gatherings so that there's open chairs for those who are, happen to find their way into this gathering. So we went to two gatherings, and one thing that we realized really, really quickly is that we broke the relationships. I heard from many of you that the place that you had relationship and that you saw a lot of these people was on Sunday, and whenever we were forced to choose, we just broke it. And part of that would have been, you know, we could have attributed to sort of the lack of small group structure you know, where you can be known and, and know people. So we put the two gatherings back to one, and we set about creating small groups. And um, at the same time, though, we continued to look for another space. So we need a, a, a bigger space. But we had two problems. The first problem was a financial problem. Every space we looked to rent 
that would accommodate what we were looking to accommodate as far as size was going to triple our rent. And I just felt like this is, I mean, with, when it comes to kingdom resources, this is financially irresponsible to sp- spend three times the dollars for rent so that we can have a room for an hour and a half. It's a terrible idea. So we, we kept looking. And so, you know, it, it, how could I with any integrity at all stand up here and say, you should give to this ministry when I'm going to go blow it in rent? I felt like it, was, it lacked integrity to, to try to do that. The second problem was the location issues. I don't know if you know, since we moved into this downtown location, we kind of like being here, right? It's like weird and cool at the same time. Isn't it? Like, I mean, I've talked to some of you that were like, I've chose to not go there for a really long time, and then God made me go. That was, Wendy has told me that a lot of times. She's like, I saw you guys. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to church in the train station. I'll just find a normal church. <laughs> so we moved into here, but we liked it, right? Like, we really like being on the street. There's sort of something sort of symbolic about being in the middle of the city, right? And there's sort of like this idea that, like, wow, like, we're in the middle of what's happening. And we moved down here, um, you know, we just felt like, you know, I don't know if you guys remember. You remember how vacant the street was? Those of you who were here, we moved in. Like, we were the only thing. Not, I mean, that's, not, that's an exaggeration. We were one of the only things on this street. And we weren't even on the street. And we didn't even have a sign for two years out front. <laughs> but, like, we talk a lot about transforming the spaces we inhabit with the power of the gospel. And, you know, when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, where they go they have the ability to transform the atmosphere, right? You guys have seen this happen, right? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's this whole idea I said earlier, mobile temples, right? Like that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and we're mobile. So we can choose where to put ourselves and transform the atmosphere of those places. It just happens. You put a Christian in a place, it should change the atmosphere, right? Well, because that's true, you can choose where you want to put yourself. But I believe the same is true for a gathering of Holy Spirit-filled Christians. Wherever you put your gathering has the potential to shift the atmosphere of a room or of a neighborhood, right? It has the potential to shift the atmosphere of a neighborhood. And certainly, when we moved in down here, we shifted the atmosphere of this street from a spirit of poverty to a spirit of prosperity, there was nobody on this street when we moved in. Again, that's an exaggeration. There was nobody on this street. But if, if you look now, there's a coffee shop across the street. There's a flower shop down the road. There's people building stuff on this street. We moved in here because we believed that God would revitalize the city because we were present. And over the past three plus years of being a faithful presence, week in and week out, minus one snow cancellation, we, we have been a faithful presence in this neighborhood. And the neighborhood has thrived because we've been here. God showed me that that was what has happened. That we've breathed, we've breathed life into an area that was dead. Can these dry bones live? I believe they can. And they do. 
So we had a problem with paying triple for a space. We had a problem with considering anything not on this street, right? Like I was like looking like this, you know, like you're, couldn't see anything. It's like, you know, looking out through a telescope. You ever look through a telescope and somebody's like really, really close to you? You can't see them, right? As we got to the end of 2018, we had a real sense that 2019 was the year God was going to move us where we located ourselves. But we still had these two problems. And at the beginning of the year, God had really stirred me and showed me that the reason that the downtown area is the way it is is because we've been here. And then he showed me that what he accomplished through us here, he wanted to do again. But this time we were to do it in a neighborhood. This opened up our search greatly. I hadn't been looking for places in a neighborhood at all. I wanted to be down here. God also said that we were to consider a space where we would have a large space for our Sunday gathering, but it wouldn't be ours all week. For any of you who have ever set up and torn down a church week in and week out, you know how terrible that is. I did it for a year. We, we were in a funeral home. That's even weirder than being a church. <laughs> we, we had moved bodies sometimes, like dead serious. Dead serious. <laughs> Bad joke. But, like, seriously, we would come in on Sunday morning to set up for church, and we'd, the casket, open casket sitting up front. It's like, well, we got to hide this so that we can have new people come in, you know, so we'd wheel it out and find another room to park it because they had the viewing on Saturday and the funeral Sunday. So plenty of weirdness, right? So any of you who know about setting up and tearing down, you know how awful it is. And so I was like, I don't really want to do that. I really, really, really don't want to do that. We started to consider, like, what if, we, uh, what if we shared space with another church? You know, churches are set up to do what we do, right? Naturally, because they kind of do what we do. So we thought, well, what if we shared space? But none of the arrangements that we came across with churches were favorable. I, I looked into par renting part of a school for our Sunday gatherings. Uh, uh, you know, we've partnered with McAuliffe Heights, and so I started to reach out at McAuliffe Heights and go, hey, would it be possible for us to use the gym for our services? And they seemed favorable at the school level, but I guess it's a higher decision than that. Um, and we really never got anywhere. But the, even at that, it was like setting up and tearing down every week. And I was just like, that sounds like an awful, awful, awful option. About a month ago, I felt the Lord say to me that the space he had for us would not be a significant increase in price. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I chose to trust God. I just figured he would do it. I've seen enough of his faithfulness to go, well, if he says so, he's probably going to do it. Then uh, shortly after that, Troy Ferguson, some of you guys know Troy over at Transformation Church. He asked us if uh, we had looked at the building over at, uh, at Wright Elementary School. What was the Wright Elementary School? The Nehemiah Project part purchased it last March. We've toured that building twice. Went through it both times, and we just didn't feel right about it, partly probably because it was in the wrong place. We were like, you know, we just don't feel right. But we decided that it just seemed like maybe this is what God was doing. So we decided to tour it again. When I got to the building to look, the first thing that struck me was it was right in the middle of a neighborhood. It was right in the middle of a neighborhood that so desperately needs God's provision. It's a neighborhood that needs to see God break through 
that a spirit of poverty would be shifted into a spirit of prosperity, that we would be part of seeing lives and generations change because we locate our presence in a place that needs God's presence. I didn't even walk inside. I was like, oh, man. This is, I think this might be, it might be the time and the place. We got inside. We started walking through. And it just like, as I walked through the building, I just, I found myself going, I know I've been in these rooms before, but it just, it feels different. This feels like home. This feels like where we're supposed to be. So I started like taking through uh, a process of discernment just to make sure that God was doing this in, you know, because I've told you I'm prone to lie to myself, as are all of you. Just some of you are more honest about it than others. Uh, but I'm good at, so I took, I started to go, help me discern whether or not this is the right thing. I took people through who, um, I would call them bubble bursters. People who, whenever I go, yeah, 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 they go, no. <laughs> yeah, like I wanted to, I, I mean, so, so some of you don't know this, and I think Roger's cool with it, uh, probably. He's told the story, actually, so I know he is. Uh Whenever we were going to move into this, we were having a group in our house and over at, uh, over at the, the New Life, yeah. And um, so we had this meeting. It was like a meeting of the families because there was like basically the core people. It was like the Flemings, the Boyers, the Bars, the Heilmans, and Roger. <laughs> and it was like a meeting of the five families, right? We're going to like get together and we're going to go. And I said, I was like, we should start a service, and we should, you know, we need to find a place and start a service. And Justin and Kelly were like, yeah. Dave and Lene were like, yeah. Gerald and Nicole were like, yeah. Why didn't you say so a while ago? I was like, yeah. And Roger goes, nope, terrible idea. You shouldn't do it. It'll be the, it'll be the end of the goodness of this church. And it'll be, I mean, it just really like, I don't think this is a good thing. And so I, I was like, <laughs> he said about a year later, he goes, good thing you didn't listen to me. <laughs> uh, where is he? I love him. <laughs> he, so I took Roger, and I was like, Roger, I want you to walk through, and I want you to tell me what you think of this. Because he's very much, you know, like, I, I just, ex I, you, you, you know, you have people in your life that you just trust. They'll, like, they, they know your heart, they know your vision, and they also, like, hear from the Lord. And so I said, Roger, I want you to tell me what your sense is as you walk through here. And we walked through, and I was waiting for him to go, no, this is a bad idea. And he goes, sadly, I have to say, I think this is a good idea. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's good. But as we prayed through it and really began to consider, God, is this something you are doing? Time and time and time again, the answer was yes. I think Justin's word was, we can't not do this. We can't not do this. And so the big announcement is that we are going to follow God's lead and move this gathering to the former Wright Elementary School. They call it the right place for kids now. I think that that's, I think that's real. I think that's like, that's prophetic, right? Like that's how we're supposed to relate to our Father. I think it's real. I'll show you a couple of pictures. This is the lobby. I'm not going to, I didn't put all of them on there. But um, for those of you who don't know where it is, it's on 11th Street. Um, so there's a lobby space, and then you can click.
flick it over to the other one. And this is the auditorium space. We're going to make it look less institutional, obviously. <laughs> you feel like you're in prison, I think, if, you, if we don't. But here's the, so here's the beautiful thing. It puts us in a neighborhood. It doubles the capacity of seating that we have. We actually have whole classrooms for kids. Like we will have like real classroom space for kids. We actually can reach our neighbors. We'll have office space there every day of the week. On Sunday, we'll basically, we'll have the auditorium, whatever kids' rooms we need. We'll basically have run of the place on a Sunday. And here's the, here's the beautiful thing. They'll let, let us leave our stuff set up there. As long as nobody else is going to use it and nobody uses it now, they will let us leave our stuff set up there. So we don't have to set up and tear down, but we're paying for this place as if we only have it one day a week. So we don't, it's not adding work to us. It's allowing us to increase our capacity. It's allowing us to bring the revitalization that we have been part of seeing here to a neighborhood that desperately needs it. You want to know the, the icing on top of the cake? It's not really going to cost us any more money than we can pay. Nowhere in this city have I come across that. We're going to be able to double how many seats we have in this room without paying. I mean, it's marginally more. It's not three times more. It's not even two times more. It's not even one and a half times more. It's a beautiful thing. 